You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. So Dylan. So Bird, my producer. I saw this video on YouTube that NASA put up, and I immediately thought of Future Perfect. 50 years ago, we pioneered a path to the moon. Okay, so I'm seeing, like, clips of Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, men with great jawlines looking really determined. I'm assuming this is something they made for the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this month? Yeah, it kind of starts out that way, but then, and this is where it interests me, it stops looking back, and it starts looking forward. Today our calling to explore is even greater. We're going to the moon by 2024. Now, Dylan, it very much remains to be seen whether we're actually going to the moon by 2024 or ever. But if we do go, it is going to cost a lot of money. Okay, I think I see where this is going. This is like a classic Future Perfect Season 1 type of episode where we look at one big wild idea and we try to figure out whether or not that idea is actually worth spending money on. And in this case, the big out-of-this-world idea is, should we go back to the moon? Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is a bonus episode of Future Perfect. I'm Dylan Matthews. And I'm Bird Pinkerton. Bird, make the case for me. Why should we spend billions of dollars to go back to the moon? Um... So in the video, NASA gives a bunch of reasons. They say stuff like, The moon is quite uniquely suited to prepare us and propel us to Mars and beyond. Most of these things are connected to getting humans into space. So at first, I was really interested in that. And then I started talking to our mutual pal, Brian Resnick. I'm a science reporter here at Fox. Love that guy. Me too. Uh, He's also the perfect person to have on the show because he is a huge space nerd. And he was telling me... Ostensibly, the Apollo missions were these like really expensive missions to basically just collect rocks. Except those rocks were a lot more than just rocks. They were really, really important for understanding our solar system. By the time that we were done reporting all of this out, The most obvious reason for going back to the moon, at least for me, was moon rocks. So Dylan, that's the case I'm going to build for you today. Why moon rocks are important for humanity 
and why we need to get more. To help build this case, I am bringing in Brian, but also Darby Dyer, who is a very cool lunar geologist and professor. And I teach a lot of classes at night. And there have been a few nights when the moon is full, when I go up to my office, get a couple of lunar samples out of the safe, and hold them in my hand and look up at the moon. Darby watched the moon landing on a tiny screen as a kid. Oh, well, Houston, you're good at one minute. She started working with moon rocks back in 1979. And to this day, it's an amazing thing to think that I can be holding something into my hand that came from that object that's up in the sky. I, I just find that to be absolutely amazing. When I was talking to Brian and Darby, they said that to understand why we need moon rocks, we first have to understand what moon rocks tell us that Earth rocks can't. So the moon has two things going for it. First of all, it has no plate tectonics. The Earth kind of like erases its history because we have plate tectonics and the continents keep moving around and things just change. There's life here. It changes the, the surface of the planet. Things get buried. Things get destroyed. So when you look at the moon today, because it never had plate tectonics, the surface is kind of what you see is what you get. That's what the moon looked like, plus or minus a few craters, four billion years ago. Um, the other thing that the moon has going for it is that there's no water. Liquid water. Liquid water changes rocks, dissolves some things, moves material from one place to another. It basically is another thing that changes and erases the geological history on Earth. So this is kind of a silly analogy, but it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that because the moon isn't weathered by water and it doesn't have any plate tectonics, it's almost like it's a time capsule, except not from my childhood, but from 4.5 billion years ago. Exactly. Yep. I mean, welcome to planetary science. This time capsule is the key to a bunch of questions that we had about the moon. These kind of unanswered mysteries. Before Apollo, there were lots of theories about how the moon was created. Like, maybe we pulled the moon into our orbit from somewhere. But the rocks that we brought back are like these 4.5 billion-year-old geological letters and keychains and photographs from the moon's creation. And scientists have basically used those bits of the time capsule to piece together the history of the moon and the Earth and even the solar system. So let's do a brief history of the moon. Once upon a time, at least 4 billion years ago, there was a smallish size body in the solar system, which we're going to call the proto-moon, and a largish sized body, which we're going to call the proto-Earth. And they slammed into each other in this violent collision that's like really impossible for me to even imagine. They collided, kind of blew up, and formed the moon and the Earth. And because this collision was so hot and violent, the moon that was just formed was covered in this ocean of magma. The surface of the moon is actually just a a hot mess, as it were. <laughs> the hot mess in that magma ocean starts to cool, and as it does so, crystals of a white mineral called feldspar begin to crystallize. And then, billions of years later, we went up to the moon and collected that feldspar. And when we brought it back, we could finally say, okay, the moon's crust is made of feldspar, the only theory about the moon's formation that would lead to feldspar is this hot mess magma theory. So this white feldspar crust is one big source of information for geologists. 
But when you look at the moon, it's not a perfectly smooth crust. It is covered in craters. They're from meteorites bashing into it. And all of those craters, they are the other big source of information on the moon. They're like a reference guide for the rest of the solar system, packed with information that we can't get anywhere else right now. For example, before we went to the moon, we could see it had these craters of different sizes, but we didn't know how old they were. Geologists like Darby, they studied rocks and glass that we collected from the craters. They figured out their ages, and they realized the big craters on the moon are older than the small craters on the moon. As time went on, uh, impacts got smaller and smaller. The craters got smaller and smaller. Which means that the solar system is getting quieter over time. Also, having dates on craters means that scientists can look at other parts of the solar system and say, hey, Mercury has a crater on it that is about the same size as this moon crater. Maybe it got dinged around the same time. It helps us put things on a timeline that helps us understand when things happened in our solar system. Neat. <laughs> yeah, it is neat. Um, and then like a third thing that the moon shows us is this kind of cool concept that I really liked was, was ground truth. <laughs> Tell me about ground truth. Something is ground truth is when you have a direct observation, something that you can have and hold in your hands and see. I really liked the idea of looking at rocks from the moon up close. So Brian and I decided to take a field trip. We drove down to the Naval Research Lab. Current FCON level, bravo. Great. <laughs> it's my favorite level. We had to get badges, register our laptops, get out of our car and into a white unmarked van. This is the most security I've gone through to, to do a journalism. <laughs> We drove to this low, squat building, and we were met by a geologist named Kate Burgess. Oh, far along. Seven and a half months, okay. expecting a moon landing anniversary, <laughs> baby. We follow her inside. So, uh, nanoscience lab is through these doors, but everybody has to put on little clean booties. Kate takes us um, into a room. With walls covered in white foam. There's aluminum foil on all the tables and benches. And Kate shows me and Brian this box. It is full of cosmic stuff. Bits of meteorites and grains that date back to before the solar system. And in these little vials... She holds up a tube with a black cap. And at the bottom, there's a little gray pile of moon dust. Yes! Kate uses a wildly powerful microscope at the back of the lab to study and learn from this dust. The, the knowledge that we've gotten about the moon specifically from having these samples is enormous. But then because we have that information, and we've been able to have ground truth for what telescopes and spacecraft see as far as, you know, we have those measurements, but... This is what the rocks really look like. What I thought yeah. the measurements said. So you said. look at a picture of an asteroid. It's like, oh, we have a picture, but you need to verify it with something physical. Yeah. And the moon helps you do that. Yeah. But let's go back. So we went to the moon in the 1960s, right? We raided our little time capsule up there. Yeah. We took some rocks back and like examined them. Spun out this whole narrative. Great, cool, awesome. Why would we need more? Because we're greedy little <laughs> bastards, not happy with what we have. No, we are greedy, but we're greedy for knowledge, bird. 
The rocks collected from the Apollo missions are all from a similar region on the moon. They're all from the equatorial region of the moon. And it's not necessarily the most interesting place to look for moon rocks. For example, there is this big basin on the far side of the moon where the frozen mantle of the moon might be exposed. And it's really, really hard to reach the mantle on Earth. So that kind of moon mantle sample could help us understand the stuff going on under our feet a little bit better. Which is cool. And why do we care? (laughs) Sorry, was that going to be your next question? Yeah, it was. Because it's the question of this episode. Why is this worth it? Well, there's a bunch of different ways to answer the question of why we want to know this. We want to know how planets formed because we want to understand how planets form somewhere else. Why do we need to know that? Well, to me, I always think that the most important question for human beings to answer is the issue of are we alone? Is Earth unique? Does intelligent life exist anywhere else in the universe? In, in a small way, understanding how planets form in our solar system also helps us understand how planets form elsewhere and gives us insights into the possibilities that Earth might not be unique. But honestly, Dylan, the real answer is that we don't actually know exactly how it will be worth it. At least not yet. The way science works is that any individual discovery on its own might not seem to be a brick in that big picture. But you never know which brick is going to be the pivotal one that solves the question, right? That builds the bridge of understanding across something that we didn't understand into something that we did. So that was very fun. But you're basically just saying going to the moon again is going to give us all the science that seems useless now, but it might be helpful in the future. And that's a really vague argument for spending billions of dollars. Mm. Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) But the moon story actually reminds me of a different story from history, Um, one that also involves people going to kind of an isolated time capsule and collecting all of the science that kind of seemed useless at the time, but that we now recognize helped us understand one of the most important issues of our time. Well, I would say that you should tell me more after the break. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Mercury. Financial operations are needlessly complex. Startups have to cobble together a patchwork of tools to reconcile transactions from different sources and struggle to glean answers from platforms that speak different languages. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account, so you can pay bills faster, stay in control of company spending, and speed up reconciliation. Apply in minutes at mercury.com and join over 100,000 ambitious startups that trust Mercury not just for banking and credit cards, but for the precision, control, and focus they need to transform their financial workflows and perform at their best. Mercury, the art of simplified finances. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank & Trust, members FDIC. Welcome back. Before we were all about exploring the moon, we were all about exploring the ice. I mean, that great age of exploration, I think, that we read about in old books and seems kind of impossibly far away. There were a group of explorers who were very interested in Greenland. This is John Gertner, who wrote a book about 20th century ice explorations and ice crossings. It held the imagination to explore this vast desert of ice, as they called it. And in one chapter, he describes this German scientific expedition from the 1930s. There's a bunch of scientists. They head out to Greenland to take some measurements. And they plan to build a station right in the middle of Greenland's ice. It's a place they call Ice Mitte. Middle of the ice. Yeah. The Germans are very good at naming things. Um, So... Two guys on the team wind up spending the winter there. One is a meteorologist named Johannes Georgi, and he's going to investigate cloud patterns and weather of all sorts. And another one is a glaciologist named Ernst Sorge, and he's going to look into the ice. But things don't go smoothly. They're living on the ice sheet at about an altitude of 10,000 feet or so, and To understand the isolation, really, is that there's nothing for 250 miles in either direction. And to make matters worse, they were supposed to get all sorts of deliveries from the West Coast. They were supposed to get an insulated hut to live in. They were supposed to get a wireless radio. They were supposed to get, you know, kerosene and all sorts of other fuel and food. And because of weather, because of lateness, because everything always goes wrong in the Arctic, none of this stuff arrived. So this is starting to sound very Apollo 13. And they're sitting there trying to figure out whether they can make it through the winter. And the two men decided that the only thing they can really do is dig a cave, essentially, to really protect themselves from the environment there. And so they literally kind of made a little castle out of blocks, like a little medieval fortification in the middle of the ice sheet. It it sounds like fun. It, It really shouldn't. It was misery. I mean, they were very low on fuel. They were low on food, too. But every day, they were going up to the surface, taking a bunch of measurements, and then returning underground. And when you're under the snow, the light from above kind of gets filtered in as blue light. So they were in this kind of weird blue glow as they sort of lied in their bunks trying to conserve their 
their, their energy and really just try and do the best science they could during these winter months when at times up above the weather dropped and the, the temperatures dropped to as low as minus 89 degrees Fahrenheit. The rest of the research team was understandably pretty worried about these two guys in the middle of the ice sheet. So they decided to send a rescue party with supplies. They headed out, but it was really late in the season. The weather was really bad. And so along the trail, they ended up having to shed a bunch of the weight they were carrying, which involved leaving a lot of the supplies behind. So when they got to Ice Mitte, where Sorga and Georgi were, the rescue party basically had to turn around again and go home. But they did leave behind this one guy named Fritz Löwe because he'd gotten really bad frostbite. What was pretty clear was that as, as the other men sort of took a look at his feet was that gangrene was setting in on his toes. And they didn't have any tools. They didn't know exactly what to do. But Georgi uh, had a penknife. And they all agreed that they would cut off the toes. They didn't have any, you know, medicines to speak of. They had a primitive or, or not a very useful antiseptic. But one night, Georgi stayed up going through the operation in his head. And in the morning, Luva lied in his bunk and Sorga held down his leg. And Georgi used his sharpened penknife and cut all the toes off on one of his feet. And it was either the next day or the day after that he cut several toes off of his other foot. But he did survive. And he was eventually able to hobble around. Bird. (laughs) (laughs) People are losing toes. And I'm assuming also losing lives for science. Um, yeah. This trio did survive. But, um... Other lives, unfortunately, were lost on this expedition. Was anyone questioning this? Or were all the Germans and Europeans back home just like, great, everyone should go die on your expensive science trips? <laughs> you can see the strain of skepticism all through history. And you can go back to newspapers from 100 years ago and see a kind of editorial writer or columnist raise their eyebrow and say, well, isn't this silly and a waste of money? And the scientific fruits from this journey were, were meager, and we don't really know what to do with them. But I think the crucial point that we've sort of been building towards is that those skeptical journalists were eventually proven wrong. It just took several decades for scientists to understand why this work was important. And I think to understand why it was actually important, we should talk a little bit about what Sorga and Georgi were doing out on the ice. One of the big projects to be done at this mid-ice station was Ernst Sorgo was going to dig into the ice sheet. At the time, people had noticed that snow fell in these seasonal layers that looked different. So if you dug down a little, you could see like, oh, there's a summer layer and there's a winter layer, another summer layer, another winter layer. And you could use those layers to kind of count the years as you were going down. But then when you went deeper, the pressure kind of fused everything together and you couldn't see distinct layers anymore. And the question was, is there a different way to date the ice? What Sorga did at Mid-Ice Station was he started digging below his snow cave. And he picks a little area and he starts to dig a descending staircase. And he goes down ultimately about 50 feet 
And what he does is he methodically carves out these blocks and brings them back up to his snow cave. And he has a scale there and he measures them. And that's when he realizes this really cool thing, which is that summer snow layers have a different density than winter snow layers, which means even if you can't see stripes, you can weigh ice and that can help you figure out how old it actually is. So the ice is kind of acting like a time capsule, just like the moon does. Precisely. You know, you can look at it and say, well, there's no real practical sort of takeaway from that. But what Sorga's work down there did was it kind of opened the minds of some other early glaciologists. And one person who was really admiring of Sorga's work was a a Swiss-American glaciologist named Henry Bader. And so a couple of decades later, Bader goes back to Greenland and starts building on Sorga's work. He was taking much, much deeper ice cores. So these are cores that went back hundreds of years or thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. But when people studied those cores and cores that came later, they were able to use them to reconstruct ancient climates and figure out how they were affected by the atmosphere. So it sounds like you're saying this taught us a lot about climate change. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what this research shows us. Majewski is here to drill an ice core. because These ice cores were important in kind of a bunch of different ways. The first is that they helped people prove that climate change could happen really, really fast. Um, That was something that was kind of up for debate for a while. Also, scientists were able to look at particles that were trapped in this ancient ice. By chemically analyzing the core, he can see what was in the air thousands of years ago. So they could say, like, okay, what was in the atmosphere when this climate was changing really, really fast in the past? And they could see greenhouse gases, for example. Now we know from the ice core record that the levels and the speed of rise are significantly greater than anything in the last 850,000 years. And the levels that we expect to get by the end of the century are going to be double what we have today. And then the third thing is that when you look at past climate change events, you can build a better model of what a future climate change event might look like. If, as expected, greenhouse gas pollution doubles by the end of this century, temperatures are predicted to rise four to six degrees. And a better model means that we can prepare better. And the money and the lives and the toes that went into the early research, they all built toward that understanding. You know, I think bit by bit in many ways from the Arctic, from Greenland's ice sheet, uh, there were these secrets that were revealed. It's not just this one digging experiment that eventually helped us understand what's happening to our Earth's climate. Sorga was also doing experiments with dynamite on the ice that were these sort of early grandfather versions of experiments that we use today to understand how ice sheets are changing. And even temperature measurements that explorers took 100 years ago help us understand how fast our planet is warming. All of this would have been impossible for someone like Sorga to see. But then again, it's really hard to see the future worth of a discovery when you come upon it. All of which is to say that I I don't think science always knows where it's going, but I think it follows a kind of deep curiosity that often pays off in ways that are unexpected and also very bountiful. And so, Dylan, that's my case for going to the moon again. 
We are at the Sorga and Georgi stage of things. We're heading to the moon. We're hopefully paying for it with dollars and not toes. But we're collecting pieces of this time capsule that will tell us the story of our moon and our planet and our solar system. And I literally cannot tell you why it might be important to humans. But there is a chance that it will be just as vital as, like, the keys to climate change. So, are you convinced? (laughs) I'm getting there. I keep thinking about this argument from Gil Scott Heron. We have a poem here. It's called Whitey on the Moon. This great poet and, and musician from the late 60s, early 70s. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. We went to the moon in 1969, and as there was poverty and urban decay and segregation, the government decided we're going to spend billions of dollars putting men on the moon. And people were understandably really upset about you know, that. The man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. And I think that's a really good argument. But with 50 years of hindsight, I think the thing I regret about that era is not that we spent a lot of money going to the moon. I more regret all the money and lives and effort we spent fighting in Vietnam or that the FBI spent trying to crack down on black liberation activists. And that's what I think about going back to the moon now. I'd much rather fund NASA's second moonshot over a war with Iran or funding new detention camps for migrants. Because there's some chance that NASA's wild expeditions will actually pay off in the future. Future Perfect is produced by me. Bird Pinkerton, with our editor, Amy Drozdowska, and our senior producer, Jillian Weinberger. We had a bunch of mixing help this episode from Jeff Gelt, who is just about the best human being on the planet. Music in this episode comes from Noam Hassenfeld, Chris Zabriskie, and APM. And as you heard, we had lots of reporting help from Brian Resnick. We're also going to link in our show notes to his fantastic article about moon rocks and the cosmos. We're also going to have a link to John Gertner's book, The Ice at the End of the World. Thank you as well to Juliana Gross and Cassandra Eichner. And Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out vox.com future perfect. And let us know what you thought of this. Leave us a rating, a review. We really love hearing from you. Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. 
Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com.